Today's show is brought to you by Tim Rogers' book, Detours. The book is available in all good stores or wherever you get your books. So get out prior to Christmas and buy a gift for yourself or someone else and make sure it's Detours by Tim Rogers. Tim Rogers, the front man and singer for the hugely popular rock and roll band UMI, is a shambolic, flamboyant and dapper Aussie flaneur, a seeker after truth, love and understanding. He's a contradiction, a hard-drinking rock star with the soul of a poet, a wordsmith and a raconteur, a romantic and a realist, a bon vivant and a loner. Detours is Tim's offbeat and immensely charming memoir where he reflects on everything from what it is to be a man to love drinking footy and fatherhood. Get out to your local bookstore and make sure you don't miss out on this amazing book. Robert Forster from the go-betweens a set of detours. Tim is a beautiful writer. Tim Rogers takes you where you want to go. So do yourself a favor and grab a copy of Tim Rogers' Detours today. Let's get on with the show. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Welcome back to 10 Questions. Now, Tracy Spicer was my favourite newsreader back in the 90s and 2000s, back in the days when you had a favourite newsreader because there were only about 12 of them. But I had no idea what was going on for her behind the scenes, the general harassment and discrimination. All this she talks about in her book, The Good Girl Stripped Bear, which has just joined the bestseller list. Since her news reading days for 10 and then Sky News, Tracy's been a columnist and documentary producer, but more recently she's been an advocate for women in the workplace, which has led to her high-profile investigation of sexual harassment in Australian media. The investigation has left Tracy physically and mentally exhausted. She talks about that in the interview. But Tracy's got broad shoulders, and over a thousand women who have been horribly treated by work colleagues are relying on her to tell their story, which in turn will hopefully bring about a seismic change in how people interact with each other in the workplace, and more particularly stop men using a position of power to sexually exploit women. But we get to all that later, because I had to start off by asking Tracy when she was most happy. (laughs) I listened to some of your other interviews, Adam, particularly that one with Tim Minchin, and I tend to agree with him that happiness is a bit of bullshit as a concept because it's relative throughout your lifetime. What does it mean? Is it contentment? Is it excitement? And when I look back, I think I was happy, happiest in my, you know, late teens, early 20s when I felt like I had, you know, some kind of promise, you know, like this, uh, mm. this child prodigy kind of thing. The world's your oyster. You can do mm. anything. And then I turned 50 this year and now people are saying to me, so what do you want your legacy to be? And that makes me feel like I'm about to die. (laughs) So I like that childhood aspect of happiness. And I see that in my two children, just the really simple things. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you do at work, you come home and the dog will fart or the children will do something funny and fall off the couch and that brings you back to that childhood aspect of happiness it's incredibly liberating apropos of absolutely nothing the first time i interviewed tracy spicer was for the brisbane news in 1995 we move on to question two who would she like to apologize to and why This is a bit cheeky, but I'd like to apologise to media executives around the world 
because what's happening with the Me Too movement is really changing the power structure that's been in place since really the golden days of the entertainment industry. There are a lot of media executives, particularly in television and film now, that are pretty scared and they have a right to be scared because women have been treated badly in the industry for too long and they're rising up. I think we're going to see a huge shake-up in the next couple of years where executives are going to lose their jobs because of the way they've behaved, the inappropriate way they've behaved for many decades. But I would like to apologise to them because I think due to the boys' club, they've become accustomed to behaving in that way. And I know for a fact that a lot of them didn't think there was anything wrong with it. They just thought that's the way it's always been. We've always used the casting couch. It's very normal to view women purely for their appearance and not for their abilities and then cast them out of the industry when they become too old and not, you know, fuckable anymore, as Mm. one Australian television executive famously said. So I kind of want to apologise to them because I feel sorry. This is coming as an awful shock to a lot of them. The Matt Lauer thing, that was the one that really blew my mind. I mean, a lock under his desk. Exactly. And that goes to show that, you know, these things are sanctioned by Mm. the superiors as well. It's not only that they turned a blind eye to it. They were complicit in it because you've just got to look at the rivers of gold that are brought in by stars like Matt Lauer. Now, who wants to bring him down? Who wants to affect this uh, this facade, this image of it being a family show by revealing what some of the stars are really like. So I wrote a column about it saying that there's a protection racket, and I do believe that's true, where these stars' behaviour is accepted and, in fact, encouraged and they're promoted and the women are silenced, sidelined or sacked because otherwise they fear the money will stop rolling in. That's why Matt Lauer, that case was incredibly important. I don't have enough money to defend myself in any defamation case, so I've redacted the next bit. But essentially I told a story about an Australian actress who auditioned for a film in Hollywood in front of the film's male star and its producers. After the actress's audition, she was sent out of the room so the film's star and producers could have a discussion about her suitability for the role. After five minutes, she was invited back into the room only to find the film's star and producers had all taken off their pants. At the time, the incident was viewed through the lens of these men being larger-than-life characters and rascals and how funny they all were. Not anymore. Tracy's heard similar stories about the film's male star and she said this kind of behaviour was commonplace in Australia as well. What we saw with Don Burke, who we investigated for six weeks, is not only was there this sexual harassment, this strange sexualised behaviour, there was also this... Uh, I guess code of mateship mm. with a, the men around him where they just either were too scared of being bullied by him and just went along with it to protect their own jobs or didn't want to speak out for fear of being seen as not one of the blokes, yeah, that's funny to sexually harass women, that's something we all do together. So I think there's a big cultural mateship peace surrounding this internationally but especially in a place like australia which is as you know is a very historically blokey culture yeah and you know redefining the idea of masculinity and being a good bystander so if you see stuff like that 
calling out and going, mate, that's a bit weird. What are you doing? You know, would you like someone to do that to your daughter? Would you like someone to do that to your wife? That's just weird, man. Mm. And, you know, backing up women who complain about it. Because the other thing that struck me is we've had a lot of women come forward, more than a 1,000, some willing to go on the record, some off the record, but really angry about what they've seen happening to other women. We've also had a lot of men come forward, but none of them want to go on the record. They're frightened of losing their jobs. They're frightened of speaking out against another man. So there's a real structured gender thing going on there. Yeah, that's right. They, they, I think the Australian male needs to realise that they're not in, not at Gallipoli anymore. You know, you, it's this kind yes. of bullshit mateship kind of thing doesn't really apply. You know, it's uh, you, if someone's behaving badly, call them out. Yeah, that's true. And I've, I've actually had – I spoke to a, a producer a couple of days ago who was very angry about something he saw – and he said he said he felt very ashamed about his own behaviour over the last 30 years and he actually apologised to his 14-year-old daughter about it because she's about to go into the industry and he called me in this frantic state saying, you've got to change it in the next couple of years because my 14-year-old's going into this culture and I did this kind of stuff and I don't want her to go through that. So it's a really interesting generational thing going on too. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing that it does sometimes take, I mean, it's actually disturbing in a way and, and sad that it actually actually takes the fact that you have a daughter before you realise that you can't treat another human being that way. Exactly. Self-interest rules, though. You know, (laughs) that's very part of human nature, isn't it? That's true. Um, Question three, Tracy, what is your greatest regret? Not standing up for myself earlier. And that's not to say that women are to blame when things like this happen in the workplace, but I just wrote a, a book, a memoir called The Good Girl Stripped Bare, and I recount all of these instances of people saying strange things to me in the workplace. For example, when I read my first full-time news bulletin at the age of 24 at Channel 10 in Brisbane and um, I went to the boss afterwards, I said, how do you think I went? I want to learn my skills. I want to improve my skills. He said, oh, love, I think you need to stick your tits out more. Oh, wow. I said, I beg your pardon. He said, get them out there. Give the audience something to look at, which is just bizarre when you break it down intellectually (laughs) and think, I'm talking about Iraq and you're thinking about what the audience's opinion of my tits is. I mean, it's just surreal. And yet I was afflicted by that good girl syndrome where I just I had no language. I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to lose my job. So to my great shame, I just kind of sat there mute. I kind of froze, you know, that fight, flight or freeze mechanism. Yeah. I froze every time someone said something like that or did something like that to me. There was another bloke, one of the big executives at Channel 10, who grabbed me on the arse at a Christmas party. And it was it was pretty offensive in itself, the act, but also at the time my mum had passed away six weeks earlier and he was complimenting me on losing weight. And I said, look, I haven't eaten much in six weeks because my mum's just passed away suddenly. And he said, oh, you're looking good. So just that really awful I'm grieving and this is happening in the workplace <sighs> moment was pretty horrific. But again, you know, I'm ashamed of myself and I know I shouldn't internalise that shame, but I am for not speaking out earlier. I finally did speak out, took me a long time, then my head exploded. But it's it's awful that we internalise this blame and shame and think, gosh, what is it about me that makes men do this to me? Why is it my fault? Tracy's book, The Good Girl Stripped Bear, was released earlier this year and follows her journey through the cruel and shallow money trench of Australian television and details some horrendous stuff that was said to her by male bosses like, I want two inches off your hair and two inches off your ass.
because so many other women have contacted me just after reading the book to say, gosh, that person you mentioned in your book, he did it to me, he did it to her. So it's opened up a whole other can of worms. Some of the stories that weren't resonating two years ago are now like so powerful. And it's just finally everyone's listening. And women are being believed finally because women thought, what was the point in yeah. telling anyone? No one's going to believe it anyway. But the other interesting thing that's come out is that this stuff is still happening now. A lot of the serial offenders from years ago are still offending with much younger women, you know, yeah. like in recent weeks and months. So it's not uh, an historical oddity. It's something that's still happening now, and it's happening because of the power imbalance where you've got industries with very powerful men and women who are much lower paid and with much less power in the workplace. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Question four is what you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Oh, I'd like you to answer that for me, actually, because... <laughs> It's something I've been afflicted with all my life and I often speak to um, Wendy Harmer about this and she's afflicted by it too. Yet we sort of, you sort of think to yourself, when will it be enough, right? Mm. So I need to learn how to be satisfied. You know, when I went to school, all I wanted to be was to be a journalist. That was my dream. And then I became a journalist, did a journalism degree, became a cadet journalist. Great. Okay. There actually were, weren't any other great dreams in my life, but each time I do something, I think, okay, what's next? And it's almost like being hounded by your own ambition. Mm. I think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's good to be ambitious, but I'd like to get to the stage in life where I think, okay, that's enough, and now I just want to stop and rest. <laughs> <laughs> does that make sense? Do you oh, God, to yeah. Ambition? Yeah, it totally does. Um it's like we're addicted to to working and and striving yeah. for the next thing, and and then we envisage this kind of utopian uh, world that we're going to be in when we've achieved the goal, but it doesn't happen. Um, exactly, it's like running this race where there's no finish line. It's quite exhausting, and I don't think we take the time to celebrate the wins because life is full of darkness and horror. Mm. And if you don't time take time to celebrate those brief moments of, as we were talking about earlier, happiness or joy or celebration or success, then we just keep ending up on this treadmill like, right, what's next, looking over our shoulder, oh, they've done that, why don't I do that? Yeah. I've got a very wise friend who always says, don't compare yourself with anybody else, just compare yourself with what you wanted to do when you were younger. And it's what you just spoke about. What would the younger you say about, you know, say in my case, you know, having a best-selling book, it's something I never thought I would ever yeah. have. So yeah. I should just be sitting there and thinking, okay, this is this is success within my own parameters. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you'd told yourself that many years ago, this would be the outcome, you'd be very happy. Yeah, definitely. I never thought I could write anything longer than a 600-word opinion column. So <laughs> no, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> They're actually harder to do than they look, the 600-word opinion column. Yeah, true, true. So you're right. I think learning to be satisfied uh, would be very satisfactory. That is something I'm going to aim for now. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very good answer. Question five, who is the person who most influenced you and how? Oh, my dear mum. She had me when she was 19, you know, oh. teenage bride kind of style. 
But she was really strong woman at the time. She was uh, the first female courier driver in Queensland. Oh. And the, the newspaper up there, the Murdoch newspaper, greeted this remarkable achievement with the headline, who would have thought women can drive after all? Oh, my God. I know. And it's funny to look back on that stuff because now insurance companies say women are actually better and safer drivers than men. But that was <laughs> the received wisdom at the time. But mum was always incredibly powerful and strong and you know sophisticated but hardcore with her with her rights and standing up for herself she always brought up my sister and I you know really to I suppose to expect more she always said to us you don't have to have children if you want you know it's ridiculous that historically women have been expected to be the ones who stay at home and men go out to the workforce so she was really ahead of her time my mum and I lost her relatively young she died around about the at the age that I'm at now so I, I do I mourn her every day and she remains the greatest role model of my life what what an incredible person was this in um I'm just racking my brain was this, this in Caloundra or no Redcliffe where did you grow up yeah Redcliffe, Redcliffe on the yeah. outskirts of Brisbane known as Deadcliffe the kind of place where you know on a weekend you'd go to the car park of the 7-eleven and do donuts in your boyfriend's purple painted sandman panel van that's right <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll. My you first did, boyfriend's did. name was Shagger. That gives you some idea of the culture at the time. <laughs> you didn't hang out with William McGinnis by any chance. Do you know I only met him for the first time a couple of weeks ago and he's, you know, very famous, obviously, actor and writer, incredibly talented. He writes really beautifully about Redcliffe. I write kind of disparagingly about Redcliffe because it was such a rough place to grow up. Yeah. But to be fair, it has become incredibly gentrified now and I do have fond memories. My dad still lives there. I go and see him every month. And I do kind of, I am grateful for growing up in such a rough area because it gives you greater empathy for the struggles that people face every day. I understand why people get addicted to shit. I understand why people struggle and end up without a job and end up in this cycle of poverty and addiction because it was all around us growing up. Of course it was. I'm very curious to know when... Redcliffe um, became gentrified. <laughs> a lot of people say if you scratch the surface, it hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the council, it, it's that interesting, that broken windows um, theory. About five or seven years ago, the council started putting a lot of money into the public spaces. So people felt proud when they went to the public spaces the waterfront spaces with the beautiful new barbecues and the pools and things like that. And vandalism went down because people thought, isn't it nice the council's giving us this stuff that makes us feel proud of our area? So I think it's, again, that, you know, if you put uh, a bit of government money into an area, people feel a little bit prouder and less likely to smash things up. It makes complete sense. Um, six, question six is when was the last time you cried and why? <laughs> Time Magazine's Me Too cover last week. Yeah. When I saw that and saw that it wasn't Donald Trump on the cover <laughs> and instead they had all these women representing a movement that I like to call Pussy Grabs Back. Yeah. <laughs> which, which was some of the um, placards that people were holding up in the Women's March. So instead of Donald Trump, the pussy grabber, there was, you know, Tarana Burke, who actually started the Me Too movement 10 years ago, and Ashley Judd, yeah. and Taylor Swift, and, you know, the arm of the woman who represented all the hospital and health workers who'd been sexually harassed. I just thought it was a brilliant cover. And it also told me that this movement isn't flash in the pan. This is going to be going for a long, long time. It feels like a moment in history. 
I said to Tracy that the men I know to be serial sexual harassers were also bullies. And not to steal any thunder from Me Too's primary objective to raise awareness of sexual harassment and to stamp it out. But one of the pleasant side effects might also be to curb the behaviour of those who think it's their God-given right to control, cajole and humiliate other people. That's exactly right, Adam. In fact, when I was talking to another young woman this morning who was sexually assaulted, you know, in an acting workplace when she was 16, just horrific, um... And she said to me that her offender, because I'd spoken to a lot of other young women about this particular man, she said, and he was also an awful bully to the other men. And that's what we've noticed with pretty much everyone we're investigating. Not only are they sexually assaulting and indecently assaulting women in the workplace, they also bully other men. So that's why I think this structural change is good for everybody in the workplace. And it's crap that these people were left to flourish and allowed to flourish for so long without any questions being asked. Yeah, those guys that behave like that, they just had this kind of born to rule thing that everyone was their playground and, you know, they bullied the other men and they essentially, I guess, what they're doing by sexually harassing is bullying the women. Yeah, exactly. And it's, again, that power imbalance, anyone who they see as weaker than them, same as the bully in the playground. It also feeds into that philosophy of Uh, corporate psychopathy, that Mm. uh, corporations are essentially psychopaths and those who rise to the top are sometimes the worst kind of characters because that's what they learned in the schoolyard. This is how I rise to power, by bullying, belittling and terrifying people. 100%. Yeah, in this uh, TV show I'm watching at the moment called Mindhunter, which is by David Fincher, um, it's all about serial killers and the, the, the FBI agents who invented the term serial killer. And they did liken serial killers to the psychopaths who rose to the top of corporations. Gee, that's interesting because whenever anyone asks, you know, who we're investigating first when we've got this bulk of probably 85 men who've been named so far, who do you choose to investigate first? And our answer is always the serial sexual predators because it's the ones that um, show that... They've been doing it for a long time. They've been protected and they're just getting worse and worse in their behaviour because no one has exposed them and they're getting away with it. And in that way, it's similar to that serial killer philosophy. Yeah. And what's uh, interesting about the serial killers too, by the way, um, if we're going down that path, is um, in the end, if they don't get caught, they they almost want to get caught. That is so interesting because that's exactly what we're seeing with a lot of these serial Uh, sexual harassers that not only do they start doing it more brazenly and more openly over time they also start doing more bizarre things and I mean strange scatological behavior weird uh, sexual proclivities that are becoming apparent and it's as if you're right they're emboldened to do that because there's part of them that wants to get caught yeah yeah it's really interesting um question seven Tracy what is your current state of mind I wish you weren't asking this because I'd love to lie and say, you know, the meditation's working and I'm going out for lots of paddle boards and the yoga's fantastic. But the truth is I'm a bit of a mess at the moment uh, for the simple fact that I'm not a sexual assault counsellor and mm. I'm not trained in that kind of area. Fortunately, my best friend from school is and she's been giving me a lot of great advice because when you hear oh, what these women have been through and the stories day after day. We've been doing this investigation for about two months now. 
it really does mess with your head. And I, I was talking, to, I'm really fortunate. I've got a really close family. My husband's wonderful. He's been a, a television news cameraman for 30 years. And we were talking about it last night. And I guess we debrief with each other every night. He's seen, he's seen some pretty horrific stuff. He was telling me last night about this dreadful car accident he saw where people were effectively beheaded. You know, he just saw four yeah. heads on the road. And oh this is God. when he was a very young cameraman. And, of course, there was no counselling at that time. So when you hear these stories of horror and see this horror over a lifetime, it, it does build up and, and mess with your head. The, so the answer, the true answer to your question is I'm actually going to go and see a psychologist next week because I'm pretty screwed up at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely understand. It, it, it's full on. I wanted to know from Tracy if there was any counselling available to journalists in newsrooms who are hearing and seeing other people's tragedy on a daily basis. There's a great centre called the Dart Centre that does a bit of this stuff for journalists now, but there's still a culture in newsrooms because they are pretty masculine places even now mm. where and, and the women who survive are very, very tough women with a lot of strong masculine qualities in their characters. If you show a little bit of vulnerability or if you ask for counselling, which is available now sporadically in newsrooms, you're seen as not tough enough and then you're not sent out on the big stories, the hard stories, which means that you can be promoted within the newsroom. So there's this reticence of people, particularly women because they want to be seen to be as tough as the men, to seek out counselling in this circumstance. Oh, my God. Um, Question eight. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, I, do you know what? D- despite the, the strange jobs that my husband and I have done, we're really fortunate. My husband's from a very working-class background as well, and we've we've actually raised two really well-balanced children. They're only, you know, 11 and 13, so I might be speaking too soon because they're going into the teenage years now. Who knows what could happen? But they're pretty down-to-earth. They're not little wankers they're not entitled <laughs> assholes and i'm really proud of the fact that we've got these you know interesting intelligent worldly kind of children who have got their feet planted firmly on the ground and i would have to say i feel that that's a great achievement because in this kind of society that surrounds us with uber capitalism and commercialism it's really easy for kids to be little entitled brats and Fortunately, because hubby and I grew up in pretty rough areas, we've kept their feet firmly on the ground. I'm really proud of that. I think it's a fantastic thing. And I also think it harks back to um, what you're doing at the moment. What were these kids who became sexual harassers? What were they told as, as kids to make them think that they can get away with this kind of stuff? Yeah, I wonder, and there'd probably be individual aspects. That'd be something I'd love to read a book on that, actually. There'd be individual aspects. But there's also that broader societal thing about when a lot of them were brought up was a time when women were really objectified and sexual harassment is the extension of treating women literally as objects, as non-human. So it's a cultural thing that's combined with the way they were brought up. Although it does make me question the men who are younger than me who've been named in this investigation who weren't really brought up in that kind of society where women were as badly objectified. So there must be something individual in their childhoods that made them think they could behave like that. Or it could be that classic quote, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm, um, Question nine, who would you want on your side in a battle and why? Ah, I've got this awesome best friend. Her name's LJ and she's freaking fierce. She's one of those people who would 
defend you to the death and I would defend her to the death as well. My husband's got this great quote. He said, you only have five friends and they're the ones who are going to bail you out of jail at three o'clock in the morning without even asking what the charge is. (laughs) (laughs) And LJ is one of those kind of gals. She's the least judgmental person I know. Whatever happened in life, I know she'd say, that's all right. I'm sure you've got your reasons. And that's (laughs) the kind of ally you need in life, I reckon. That's good. That's right. Write a list and cross the ones off who are going to be judgmental or ask questions because they're not the ones you want on your side. (laughs) So it's such a good quote. And the final question, Tracy, what would you like your last words to be? I quite like the last words of Karl Marx. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And some people would say I've said quite enough in my lifetime, so I would be happy to go without any last words and to say all my all my meaningful words and words that could hopefully affect change throughout my lifetime. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 